Volume Two, Chapter Six of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Two, Chapter Six. It's a deep mystery the way the heart of man turns to one woman out of all the rest he's seen in the world, and makes it easier for him to work seven year for her, like Jacob did for Rachel, sooner than have any other woman for the asking. George Eliot. Life has its crystal days, its rare hours of a stainless beauty, and a joy so pure that we may dare to call in the flowers to rejoice with us, and the language of the birds ceases to be an unknown tongue. Our real life, as we look back, seems to have been lived in those days that memory holds so tenderly. But it is not so in reality. Fortitude, stepfastness, the makings of character, come not of rainbow dawns and quiet evenings and the facile attainment of small desires. More frequently they are the outcome of the sleepless nights that mould youth, of hopes not dead but run to seed, of the inadequate loves and friendships that embitter early life, and warn off the young soul from any more mistaking husks for bread. John had had many heavy days, and latterly many days and long-drawn nights when it had been uphill work to bear in silence, or bear at all, the lessons of that expensive teacher, physical pain. And now pain was past, and convalescence was past, and fate smiled and drew from out her a knotted medley of bright and sombre colours, one thread of pure untarnished gold for John, and worked it into the pattern of his life. Die was at Overly. Tall lilies had been ranged in the hall to welcome her on her arrival. The dogs had been introduced to her at tea-time. Lindo had allowed himself to be patted, and, after sniffing her dress attentively with the air of a connoisseur, had retired with dignity to his chair. Fritz, on the contrary, the amber-eyed Dachshund, all tail-wagging and smiles and saliva, had made himself cheap at once, and had even turned over on his back, inviting friction where he valued it most before he had known Di five minutes. Di was, really, at Overly. Each morning John woke up incredulous that such a thing could be. Each morning listened for her light footfall on the stairs, and saw her come into the dining-hall, an active, living presence, through the cedar and ebony doors. There were a few other people in the house, the sort of chance collection which poor relations, arriving with great expectations and their best clothes, consider to be a party. There were his aunt, Miss Fane, and a young painter who was making studies for Elizabethan Etiera, and someone else, no more than one, two, or three others. John never clearly remembered afterwards who, or whether they were male or female. Perhaps they were friends of his aunt's. Anyhow, Mrs. Courtney, who had proposed herself at her own time, was apparently quite content. Di seemed content also, with the light-hearted joyous content of a life that has in it no regret, no story, no past. John often wondered in those days whether there had ever been a time when he had known what Di was like, what she looked like to other people. He tried to recall her as he had seen her first at the speaker's, but that photograph of memory of a tall, handsome girl was not the least like Di. Di had become Di to John, not like anything or anybody, die in a shady hat sitting on the low wall of the bowling-green, or die riding with him through the forest, and up and away across the opal moors. Or better still, 
Di singing ballads in the pictured music-room in the evening, in her low, small voice, that was not considered good enough for general society, but which, in John's opinion, was good enough for heaven itself. The painter used to leave the others in the gallery and stroll in on these occasions. He was a gentle, elegant person, with the pensive, regretful air, often observable in an imaginative man who was married young. He made a little sketch of Di. He said it would not interfere, as John feared it might, with the prosecution of his larger work. Presently a wet morning came, and John took Di on an expedition to the dungeons with torches, and afterwards over the castle. He showed her the chapel, with its rose window and high altar, where the daughters of the house had been married, where her namesake, Diana, had been wed to Vernon of the Red Hand. He showed her the state-rooms, with their tapestried walls and painted ceilings. Di extorted a plaintive music from the old spinet in the garret gallery, where John's nurseries were. Mitty came out to listen, and then it was her turn. She invited Di into the nursery, which, in these later days, was resplendent with John's gifts, the pride of Mitty's heart, the envy of the elect ladies of the village. There were richly bound Bibles and church services and Russian leather writing-cases, and inlaid tea-caddies, and china stands and book-slides, and satin-lined work-boxes bristling with cutlery, and photograph-frames and tea-sets. In fact, there was everything. There, also, John's prizes were kept, for Mitty had taken charge of them for him since the first holidays, when he had rushed up to the nursery to dazzle her with the slim red volume which he had not thought of showing to his father, to which, as time went on, many others were added, and even great volumes of Stuart Mill in calf and gold during the Oxford days. Mitty showed them to die, showed her John's little high-chair by the fire, and his Noah's Ark. She gave Di full particulars of all his most unromantic illnesses, and produced photographs, taken at her own expense, of her lamb in every stage of bullet-headed childhood, from an open-mouthed face and two clutching hands set in a lather of white lace, to a sturdy, frowning little boy in a black velvet suit, leaning on a bat. "'There's the last,' said Mitty, pointing with pride to a large steel engraving of John in his heaviest expression, in a heavy gilt frame. "'That was done for the tenantry when Master John came of age.' And Mitty, in spite of a desperate attempt on John's part to divert the conversation to other topics, went on to expatiate on that event until John fairly bolted, leaving her in delighted possession of a new and sympathetic listener. "'And all the steps was covered with red cloth,' continued Mitty to her visitor. "'And the crowd, Miss Dinah, you could have walked on their heads. And Mr. John came down into the hall, and Mr. Goodwin was with him, and he turns round to us, for we was all in the hall, drawn up in two rows, from Mrs. Alcock to the scullery-maid, and he says, "'Where is Mrs. Empson?' These were his very words, Miss Tempest, my dear, and I said, "'Here, sir,' for I was along of Mrs. Alcock, and he says to Parker, "'Open both the doors, Parker,' and then he says, quite quiet, as if it was just every day, "'I have not many relations here,' for there was not a soul of his own family, miss, and he did not ask his mother's folk, but he says, I have my two best friends here, and that is enough. Goodwin, he says, will you stand on my right, and you must stand on the other side, Mitty. It took me here, miss, said Mitty, passing her hand over her waistband, and me and my cap and everything. I was all in a tremble. I felt I could not go. But he just took me by the hand, 
and there we was, miss, us three on the steps, and all the servants are gathered round behind, and a crowd such as never was in front. They trot down all the flower-beds to nothing. Hey, dear, when we come out, you should have heard em cheer, and when they see me by him, I heard him saying, Who's yon? And they said, That's the old nurse has reared him from a babby. And they shouted till they was fit to crack, and called out, Three cheers for the old nurse. And Master John, he kept smiling at me, and I could do nothing but roar. And there was Mrs. Alcock. I could hear her crying behind, and Parker cried too, and he's not a man to show, isn't Parker, like we know him, miss, since he was born. And there was no one else there that did, only me and Parker and Mrs. Alcock, and Charles, as had been footman in the family, and came down special from London at Master John's expense. And such a speech as my precious lamb did make before them all, saying it was a day he should remember all his life. Those were his very words. Ah, it was beautiful. And all the presences the deputations brought, one after another, and the cannon fired off fit to break all the glass in the windows. And in the evening a hawk's roasted howled in the courtyard, and a bonfire such as never was on Boat Hill. And when it got dark you could see the bonfires burning at Carley and Killingham and wet waste and right away to Kenston, all where his land is, bless him. Oh, dear me, Miss Temple, why was not some of you there? John, said Di half an hour later, as he was showing her some miniatures in the ebony cabinet in the picture gallery, which Cardinal Woolsey had given the tempest of his day, why were not some of us, Archie or father, at your coming of age? They were sitting in the deep window seat, with the miniatures spread out between them. There was no question about their coming, said John. Archie was going in for his examination for the army that week, and your father would not have come if he had been asked. I did invite our great-uncle, General Hugh, but he was ill. He died soon afterwards. There was no one else to ask. You and your father and Archie and I are the only tempests there are. The miniatures were covered with dust. John's and Di's pocket-handkerchiefs had an interest in common, which gradually obliterated all difference between them. "'Why would not father have come if you'd asked him?' said Di presently. "'You are friends, aren't you?' "'I suppose we are,' said John, "'if by friends one only means that we are not enemies. "'But there is nothing more than civility between us. "'You seem wonderfully well up in ancient family history, Di. "'Don't you know the story of the last generation?' "'No,' said Di, "'I don't know anything for certain. "'Granny hardly ever mentions my mother even now.' I know she's barely on speaking terms with father. I hardly ever see him. When she took me, it was on condition that father should have no claim on me. You did not know, then, said John slowly, that your mother was engaged to my father at the very time that she ran away with his own brother, Colonel Tempest? Di shook her head. She coloured painfully. John looked at her in silence, and then pulled out another drawer. She was only seventeen, he said at last, with a gentleness that was new to die. She was just old enough to wreck her own life and my poor father's, but not old enough to be harshly judged. The heaviest blame was not with her. There is a miniature of her here. I suppose my father had it painted when she was engaged to him. I found it in the corner of his writing-table drawer, as if he had been in the habit of looking at it. He opened the case and put it in her hand. 
Miniatures have generally a monotonous resemblance to one another in their pink and white complexions and red lips and pencilled eyebrows. This one possessed no marked peculiarity to distinguish it from those already lying on Di's knee and on the window-seat. It was a lovely face enough, oval and pale and young, with dark hair and still darker eyes. It had a look of shy innocent dignity, which gave it a certain individuality and charm. The miniature was set in diamonds, and at the top the name Diana followed the oval in diamonds, too. John and I looked long at it together. "'Do you think he cared for her very deeply?' said Di at last. "'I'm afraid he did.' "'Always?' "'I think always. The miniature was in the drawer he used every day. I don't think he would have kept it there unless he had cared.' Di raised the lid of the case to close it, and as she did so a piece of yellow paper which had adhered to the faded satin lining of the lid became dislodged and fell back over the miniature on which it had evidently been originally laid. On the reverse side, now uppermost, was written in a large, firm hand the one word, FALSE. John started. "'I never noticed that paper before,' he said. "'It stuck to the lining of the lid,' he replied. "'It must have been always there.' The soft rain whispered at the lattice. In the silence one of the plants dropped a few faint petals on the polished floor. "'Then he never forgave her,' said Di at last, turning her full, deep glance upon her companion. "'He did not readily forgive. He must have been a hard man. I do not think he was hard at first. He became so.' "'If he became so, he must have had it in him all the time. Trouble could not have brought it out.' unless it had been in his nature to start with. Trouble only shows what spirit we are of. Even after she was dead he did not forgive her. He put the miniature where he could look at it. He must have often looked at it. And he left that bitter word always there. He might have taken it away when she died. He might have taken it away when he began to die himself. I am afraid, said John, there were shadows on his life, even to the very end the shadow of an unforgiving spirit. Yes, said John gently, but that is a deep one, Di. It numbs the heart. He took it down with him to the grave. If it is true that we can carry nothing away with us out of the world, I hope he left his bitterness of spirit behind. Di did not answer. The very unforgiveness and bitterness were in him only the seamy side of constancy, said John at last. He really loved your mother. If he had really loved her, he would have forgiven her. Not necessarily. A nobler nature would, but he had not a very noble nature. That is just the sad part of it. There was a long silence. At last Di closed the case and put it back in the drawer. She held the little slip of paper in her hand and looked up at John rather wistfully. He took it from her and, walking down the gallery, dropped it into the wood fire burning at the further end. He came back and stood before her, and their grave eyes met. The growing intimacy between them seemed to have made a stride within the last half-hour, which left the conversation of yesterday miles behind. "'Thank you,' she said. End of Volume 2, 
Chapter 6